0: And this is episode 345, dated Friday, February 2nd, 2024.
1: You are listening to the In Perspective, Perspective. Weekly Podcast with Bob Branco and Peter Autul.
0: Hello everybody and welcome once again to In Perspective. My name is Bob Branco and this is episode 345, dated Friday, February 2nd. 2024. Yeah, Groundhog Day for those people who care. What a weird day Groundhog Day is, if you really want to think about it. But that's a subject for another day. We won't talk about that. With us today, we have Peter Alchel, of course, from Coos Bay, Oregon. Peter, what's the weather like today?
2: It is typical Oregon weather this time of year, which means windy, rainy, chilly, obnoxious, and generally better than snow and what goes on in other parts of the country so i'm fortunate to be here
0: we've had a very cloudy week we're wondering whatever happened to the sun it hasn't been out much in the past seven days or so but hopefully it'll be out this weekend and we'll be all set with that before we continue let me thank those people who make it possible for in perspective to be aired we start out with our media outlets thank you for airing us when you do Tom and Lynn from Rosie's Place Chat Line, thank you very much for posting our programs. Also, Raymond Gay, our producer and editor, thank you for putting out a quality program for us. And, of course, Jacqueline Sylvia from JS Web Solutions, thank you very much for archiving our shows on my website. All you have to do to go to them is to go to my website, which is www.brancoevents.com. Arrow down until you get to In Perspective Podcasts. Click on those and you will see most of our archive shows from latest to earliest.
2: Merci, Jackie.
0: I also want to say hi to a faithful listener, Ann Chiappetta. Thank you so much for listening and for offering your feedback on the program. We appreciate what you have to offer us. I also want to thank Trisha or Trish once again for being our host for today and Herbie for streaming on ACB Media 5. And because we are streamed, not everybody has our email address that's listening because that's not one of my distribution lists. Our email address, should you want to comment about our shows and what we talk about, it's bobbranco93 at com. That's bobbranco93, 93, B-O-B-B-R-A-N-C-O-93 93, at gmail.com. Back for a third appearance. On In Perspective, we have with us Janet Lebrecht. She's with Synergy Consulting Partners. Janet, it's a pleasure having you on the show again. We appreciate it. Oh,
3: thank you very much for the invitation. I appreciate it as well.
0: Thank you. So just fill the listeners in on what Synergy is all about and we can take it from there.
3: Sure. So as some of you probably know, or most of you probably know, I served as the commissioner for the Rehabilitation Services Administration under the Obama administration. And during his presidency, I was appointed to oversee all of the national vocational rehabilitation programs across the country, as well as some of the other programs that fall under that umbrella as well. And so during his presidency, uh, I got to thinking about Well, this is going to be a fast tour. Four years goes by a lot faster than, than we think. What am I going to do beyond this? And I've always wanted to have an opportunity to start my own consulting practice, building on some of the career experiences and things that I've done, you know, over my career. And I, you know, my career started at the Massachusetts commission for the blind as a commissioner there. So in Massachusetts is my home state. And so after the Obama administration, I relocated. I live approximately about one hour, a little over an hour outside of Atlanta, Georgia. And I love that because I am not in the cold, although I just came from Omaha, Nebraska at 22 below zero for an entire week out there. So I was happy to get back to Atlanta, to say the least. So I found its synergy. With uh, two colleagues of mine, who I happen to have known, who do very good work in the community. And our goal was to continue doing work with vocational rehabilitation agencies. We really had placed an emphasis on supporting the agencies and helping them to be more creative and innovative. And certainly to be more consumer-focused and stepping out of their comfort zone and identifying different initiatives and programs and opportunities, number one, to connect either with the disability community itself or with business and entrepreneurs. There's a lot of opportunity out there. And we really felt as though we wanted to connect with the agencies and and take it one step further. And so we have engaged in working with agencies to do things like consumer engagement so every 3 years agencies are required to conduct a comprehensive statewide needs asali- needs analysis and that is the purpose of that is to identify where the needs are coming from within each respective state so regardless of who the disability community is it's really there to gather feedback from the community specifically about the quality of the services the type of services Were there opportunities that the agency could take advantage of? What was the relationship like with the agency and with the disability community? So every three years, agencies have to conduct these types of analysis, and then they have to submit a report into uh, the Rehabilitation Services Administration and into Congress. And so that work in itself is very important because it gives, gives the opportunity for the agency to hear a lot of feedback. Some feedback is is positive. There's other feedback that's negative. There's always suggestions and recommendations by the disability community to talk about ways that they feel as though the agency can improve or engage the disability community differently. It's also an opportunity, I think, for the agencies to, to look at who they are engaging for internal operations. So, for example, on the state rehab councils, you know, are there enough individuals that are represented on the board, you know, where the agencies can certainly reach out to and and bring, you know, new individuals in to get new ideas and new participation. And so we, we look at everything from how their agencies are operating. Are they within compliance? Are they having a lot of issues with, for example, providing services, for example, to rural communities? Are they in need of looking at additional resources and what's the best way to identify those resources? Looking for innovative initiatives and sometimes, you know, the, the, the disability community will provide information to, you know, the agencies and sometimes the agencies want to reach out to the community to get their ideas and, and, you know, potentially help with identifying some barriers that are still existing within agencies, within policies, looking at programs, for example, like the randolph Shepherd program. What is that program like now since we are now post-pandemic? What was the impact, you know, on that? So we get inquiries from agencies about those types of programs. We also support agencies in looking at ways that they can better align their uh, resources, their financial resources. So sometimes agencies, you know, have more resources at the federal level, but they don't have enough resources at the state level. And so we help them with identifying some of those issues, why that is occurring, you know, how can that possibly change? How well engaged are they with the disability community? Because the disability community can be, you know, the agency's strongest ally and advocate for additional resources. And then we also do things like employment landscape analysis. So, you know, vocational rehabilitation counselors, and I, I was one for a long time, but I also worked in independent living and I did VR and, and I know that it's challenging sometimes for counselors to necessarily have their thumb on everything that's happening, you know, in, in the employment market today. And as we all know, there's been a range of shifts occurring in in the employment market. So we help agencies to do an employment landscape analysis for their agency. So we look at what is happening in any respective state in terms of where where is the industry in that state? What's the likelihood that that industry is going to remain sustainable? Are there going to be shifts in that type of work? But more importantly, we look at and help the agencies to understand that their counselors need to have their finger on the pulse of that information because as they are supporting their own clients going through vocational rehabilitation services, it's important for those counselors to know whether or not a specific field, for example, is going to continue to be sustainable in that respective state. And so, for example, if you have counselors and and individuals are going to college and they're going to college in a field that's actually declining, Then that doesn't help the client, you know, because they're picking a field that's not going to be sustainable long term. They may be fine in the short term, but you really want to have people as prepared as possible in the long run so that they have that information at the onset in terms of what types of employment may be actually more sustainable than others. And, and I think also too with the employment landscape analysis today, we've obviously had a significant shift. And so the employment rate now for individuals with disabilities prior, you know, to the pandemic, you know, was, was much lower. It's now at about 22%, which is still, you know, low. But in that, that increase in that employment rate actually occurred because of the pandemic. And so Unintended consequences of the pandemic really resulted in the opportunity for individuals who have disabilities to become employed and work remotely. And I probably don't have to say this to any of you. We all know it historically that has not been the case. And historically, we, we know that oftentimes organizations and agencies and employers were very adamant about not allowing remote work opportunities. And so. When the pandemic hit and everyone had to pivot and switch to remote working, a couple of things happened. One, Number one, it demonstrated that individuals with disabilities, given the technologies and the combinations that they need, can absolutely work remotely. And so that created an opportunity for that type of an increase in employment for people with disabilities. Mm-hmm. In other cases, you know, it. Actually became a barrier for people with disabilities. And one of the programs that we see that the most is in the Randall Shepherd program or the vending program. And that has been significantly impacted that particular program. And so if you're not familiar with that program, it's a self-employment program where every state in a blindness specific agency has a program where individuals can become trained and they can operate their own vending location. And typically those locations historically have always been in federal or state buildings or municipal buildings. And some states actually have a large pocket of those kinds of businesses in the prison systems the commissaries and they operate their own businesses. And so once the pandemic hit. One of the unintended consequences of that is because the Randolph Shepherd program is concentrated in federal and state and municipal buildings. Well, a lot of those buildings, you know, closed down because everyone was working remotely. And many of those locations and those buildings and municipalities have not reversed. They matter of fact, there's a lot of discussion about those buildings being sold or repurposed. And so it creates a problem for individuals who are blind, who are relying on the Randolph Shepard program as a self-employment opportunity. And so it's time to reimagine that particular program and identify some more innovative strategies or approaches to what else can individuals do, you know, for self-employment besides the Priority, you know, that the national priority, the federal priority that people have for the Randolph Shepherd program. And so there's discussion about that as well. And so, and so it's, it's interesting just to see these kinds of shifts occurring and thinking about different ways. And we're trying to help agencies to, to do that. And we also interface with the community as well. When we have opportunities to work with the agencies, we, we have traveled around respective states and held focus groups so that we could hear comments from the community about, you know, specific services or about, you know, relationships, about service delivery, about challenges for agencies trying to secure vendors, you know, for services that need to be provided for their clients out in their community. So, and there's a range of different Issues Really, the the VR program, although it's one program, it operates very differently in each state, but they're governed under the same rules and regulations. But there are very localized issues that impact some of those agencies, depending on the state. If you look at a state like California or Texas, they're incredibly large states and they are, are very urban, but they're also extremely rural. And so there are a combination of factors and and issues and challenges for both the agencies delivering the services, but also for the consumers who are in need of those services. So that's the work that we do with Synergy. And we also do some work with policy development, since I've worked in in policy for, for many years, and particularly my role in the administration, that, you know, redeveloping Policies that govern, you know, the rehabilitation program, but we also follow what's going on legislatively too. So the thing that I'm most in tuned in and excited about is the marriage penalty proposed legislation on that following that very closely and hoping that that marriage penalty act, it's, it's long overdue, uh, should be changed and you know, hopefully. Definitely. Yeah. Hopefully those. I, I policy- think.
0: I will say this, Janet, I will make a comment about that. And then I have one more question before I turn it over to Peter. The marriage penalty, I feel they set the bar way too low for income guidelines, way too low.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And, and I, and I think, yeah, that has to be changed. I've written letters. I've had other people write letters in the past to different legislators about the marriage penalty and what's wrong with it. I'm hoping that there's more progress now than there was back then. There needs to be progress. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Now my question is, how much of a voice do you feel the disability community has in in all the decisions that are made? I'm only asking because I know we encourage here in Massachusetts that the disability community speak out whenever they can about different problems that they're facing, whether it's an agency, whether it's just an issue that they're facing. Whatever it is, we encourage that input. And I know some people like to speak out. So I just wanted to ask you, generally speaking, how much do you feel the disability community is speaking out when they're working with these VOC rehab agencies that you're that you're managing?
2: And 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 before you answer that question, I I would just just a follow up to that question is how well do you think? Generally, Volk Rehab agencies are, are taking those comments and integrating them into their programs. And can you give me an example or two of how that's working in, in a positive way?
3: Sure. And I, I'll start with the question regarding how much of a voice does the community have? The view the community has amazing power and ability to impact change and policies, and that has been demonstrated. You know, multiple times historically throughout the rehabilitation act because all of the reauthorizations and reiterations of rewriting and changing policies for the program came from the community. They came from the community. They came from key stakeholders. They came from parents. They came from, you know, consumers themselves who were receiving services and they came from, you know, employers. So there is a, there is a, an incredible opportunity there, you know, to have your voice be heard. And I think that the key to it really is speaking as one voice. And so the first thing that Congress will tell any of us, and that, you know, I'm including the disability community, key stakeholders, everyone, is that they need to have a consistent message. We may not always agree on how we're going to get there, but the, if the overall message is that, like the Marriage Penalty Act, there needs to be a change in that. It is the voices of the people impacted by it, who s- should be speaking the loudest and who are heard, and it's also their key supporters. it's the parents you know of those individuals who may have significant disabilities that their voices you know need to be heard, and so they do take that very seriously. When I went into the Obama administration. I came in just at a time when they were actually making decisions in Washington to move the vocational rehabilitation from the U.S. Department of Education under the U.S. Department of Labor. And there was a significant backlash or concern about that by the disability community, by key stakeholders, because everyone felt apparently that, you know, the, the program has has been within you know the U.S. Department of Education, but also that more attention would be there within that department as opposed to the U.S. Department of Labor, which is extremely a large agency. And yes, it does it does have all of the employment connections there, but the the community key stakeholders, advocates, providers were were very adamant about the program staying within the U.S. Department of Education. And so to get Washington and Congress to, you know, to make those kinds of decisions and change, you know, it does absolutely take the voice of, you know, the community to do that. So everyone, when you have the opportunity to weigh in on any type of topic, particularly this topic with the SSI marriage penalty, it is incredibly important to to know that, you know, your voice is being heard. But more importantly, it's important for them to know how you feel about, you know, any of these proposed changes.
0: For those people, I'm sorry, Peter, I just wanted to clarify a little on the marriage penalty since Janet brought it up originally. Uh, Janet, correct me if I'm wrong. I'll explain the marriage penalty as I know it, and you can correct me. Sure. If a spouse makes X amount of money per year, the other spouse's SSI gets taken away. Yes if you know and i'm not sure what the amount is right now it might have changed in the past 4 or 5 years but i just feel they're setting the bar way too low so can yeah, you think- so
3: the in in 2024 the maximum penalty I'm, I'm sorry the maximal ssi payment for individual is and this doesn't mean everybody is getting this but this is the max is 900 Let's see, $943 and some change every month. That's the maximum. So when you, what happens is, is that when two people who are blind and they're married, what they do is they penalize that person. And so you're actually, you know, you actually receive a significant reduction if you're not taken off the program altogether just because you're married. So in the proposed new, SSI program to eliminate that marriage penalty, they're talking about a couple of things. One is eliminating that disparity where, you know, just because two people are blind or married, they should be penalized because no other disability group is penalized for that, for being married. And then secondly, they're talking about increasing the allowed amount of savings. So right now, I think it's uh, 2000 for an individual and it's around 3000 something for a married couple. So, wherever you look, you see the disparity there between a single person and a couple who is married because they're both SSI recipients, you know, not being able to, you know, have that leverage where their the equity is there for for them. So, that so hopefully this this will help. They're talking about increasing the savings piece to $10,000 for Individuals or SSI recipients, but That's they're also, it is, but it, it, but it also, I think I'm hoping that it also includes an opportunity for, you know, people who are SSI recipients and married that they have the opportunity to acquire, you know, both financial literacy skills and also a, a much, much, much stronger emphasis on self-employment opportunities. And I don't mean just the Randall Shepard program, which is considered a self-employment. Career, but other traditional self-employment opportunities, just as the general public has the opportunity to become self-employed, because I think that that is how people reach, you know, the, the equity when compared to other groups. And I think that's also how we help individuals to become self-sustaining, you know, if they're making a living wage, if they're earning a living wage and we should be, we should be really emphasizing self-employment as another Strategy for people with disabilities.
0: Yeah. By the way, I just wanted to mention that the marriage penalty doesn't only apply to blind people. I won't mention no. who the I won't mention who the couple is, but a a wife with a disability other than blindness had mm-hmm. SSI taken away from them when she married her husband.
3: Right. Yeah. It and it's and it seems to be. I mean, it's a very complex system, but I raised the issue initially just because, again. This this is an opportunity that doesn't come along very often. And so I think it's one of those issues that's really important for people to have their voices heard on this issue.
2: Can you talk about how that bill is progressing in Congress and the realistic shots of it of it passing during this session?
3: Well, I am hoping I mean, it has all kinds of bipartisan support. That's that is what is really interesting about this. You know, but I I'll say, you know, with the caveat that given the environment that we're in right now, anytime there's an election year, it can go either way. Sometimes because it's in an election year, you know, and they want to demonstrate before the session's over that they've they've passed some significant legislation and it's bipartisan, then sometimes that can happen. We're in a trend right now that I am really hoping that that could potentially be, you know, the case if not i think that given the level of support that there is in a bipartisan level that the next time around the next session hopefully that they you know that that would stay there and that that would continue to make movement from what i understand it is continuing to make movement and more representatives have signed on you know to it and agree to it so the fact that it's bipartisan i i it gives me some hope that that they'll be able to to move through some of this is there a Do bill you know number <laughs>
2: Bill numbers, yeah. yeah. Thank you, Bob. Uh, bill numbers or is this c- connected with other bills or did you you
0: know, what, what's going yeah, on? Yeah,
3: there yeah, there is. I don't have that right in front of me though, but I think Bob, you you actually put that out, I think, before too.
0: I did, but I didn't have a I didn't know about this update. I'm very happy to hear about it, but I, oh, okay. I know before I was just concerned about what they were doing with the penalties. I thought it was wrong. Yeah.
3: Yeah, no, no, it's, it's still, it's still hanging, it's still hanging in there, which is a really good sign. So I, I'll find the bill number for you and then I'll send it to you, Bob, and then you can distribute it.
2: I Th- think that would be is- really helpful because this is the first time I've heard about this. Yeah. Um, and it's,
0: and it's significant
2: news. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. They,
3: yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about it. And I'm really hoping, you know, that, that this really can drive some change, but also just to give you an example, you know, when you think about self-employment in the general population, it's a, it's around 8% of individuals that are self-employed. But when you look at things like the Vocational Rehabilitation Training Program nationally, and you look at the outcomes, meaning the number or the percentage of people who went through the Voc Rehab Program for the purpose of becoming self-employed, it's, it's like 1.7%. And so, you know, that's significantly, that's significantly low. That definitely needs to, you know, needs to change. And it also needs additional resources because the Randolph-Shepard program, although it's a special priority program, you know, for individuals who are blind and has been since its inception in the 30s, the problem with that is, is that agencies operate that program within their existing budget. There's no separate source of funding for that program beyond that. And so that has never been challenged and that has never been adjusted. And in order for that to happen, the re- the regulations need to reopen for that particular program. But I do think, you know, that there are lots of opportunities here. There are lots of organizations that are out there that can also offer, you know, self-employment training. Some of the VR agencies are partnering with some of those organizations like National Disability Institute. They, they have some programs that are free of charge for people with disabilities who want to go through, you know, their particular self-employment training program. They also have self-employment training for vocational rehabilitation staff because, you know, it's, it's interesting because when you're a counselor, you're, you go through your master's degree program and you learn everything except for self-employment. That's, that's becoming more, you know, of a, I think an issue in terms of how the colleges and universities are graduating out individuals because, you know, not everybody knows about self-employment or knows the process of it or has ever been self-employed. So how, why would we expect counselors to come out understanding how to help their client to navigate their way through self-employment? So there are some initiatives now where State agency counselors can actually engage in training to learn about it so that they can then in turn turn around and help their clients who express an interest in becoming self-employed. So there's a lot of opportunity here for changes. I think that, you know, as we go forward, once we get out of 2024 out of the election cycle, I think that you will see that there will be, you know, different trend happening. You know, I think you'll see that there'll be different advocacy efforts, I think you'll see that there are ways that the community can certainly engage and and certainly make recommendations and suggestions.
2: Janet, I'm I'm really intrigued by your talk about the Randolph Shepherd program, which has been around for you know for a long time. Yeah. And you've you've talked about how it's less appealing because of buildings closing and all that stuff and the and the you know remote work and so on and so forth. What kinds of things are being done to sort of trans you know to transition folks from that program who aren't being successful for not their own fault to what what kinds of things are being done to provide them with more options or more training what's what's being done to address that that challenge?
3: Well, agencies you know are working with the people that are in those respective programs, and you know some of the agencies have been really really good you know with working with people and and helping them to identify alternative. Career paths if they're you know if they're open to a different career path, some of the actual Randolph Shepherd people over the the years have have kind of shifted outside of and some of them are into franchises, so some of agencies are working with you know consumers around that, but also there is an an age issue in the in the Randolph Shepherd program because it is an old program. So individuals have tended to stay in that program for many years. So what happens is, is that those individuals since the pandemic, and and you know I think this is important because the pandemic not only had a an impact in general, but many individuals who have disabilities have also comorbidity conditions, other health-related conditions that really put them at high risk for COVID and other types of conditions, you know, that were exacerbated by COVID. And so some of those individuals were impacted by that as well and decided to retire. Many of those individuals in the program have been in there 20, 25 years, 30 years. I talked to somebody who was in there almost 50 years in the program. And so you as you can imagine, they're not interested, you know, in starting over. So the challenge becomes, you know, thinking about how do we help the youth in our country who are blind to, number one, have an interest in the program, to raise awareness about the program? How do we remarket, you know, that program? We we almost have a double-edged sword with youth in our country, especially youth that are blind, because you know, the the older population, you know, went to private schools, Perkins School for the Blind, other blind schools around the country. And so they were not mainstreamed. But then we went into a generation in the 70s, you know, where we, you know, had students that were being mainstreamed into schools. Those individuals have now grown up and they're all they were all you know, in the community, they're not used to being in in a blind school. We have some that have done both. I'm a product of both. I went to Perkins and then I went to public school also. And so we want kids and youth to be integrated into the mainstream of society, but we've also now sort of created, if you will, sort of this paradigm of they don't want to be separate. They want to be out in the mainstream of community. They want to be in regular you know, in any activities that are going on. They want to do the things that general populations are doing of youth their ages are doing. So trying to recreate an interest in the randolph Shepherd program specifically is going to really be challenging and it's going to need to sort of respond to where for the youth, where is their interest? If they want to be self-employed, what do they want to do? You know, a lot of our youth now are of the generation where they're brand specific. We're talking franchises. You know, we're talking Dunkin' Donuts. We're talking, you know, whatever happens to be popular. You know, for this, for the generation, for the younger generation, they grew up on these on these brand names. So why can't they become self employed? You know, in those particular areas, I see nothing wrong with that. I think that that's actually good.
2: At at, at the risk of at at the risk of, of being obtuse for a second given that the Randolph Shepherd program seems to be less successful than it has been in the past, why steer people there in the first place?
3: You know, I d- well, I, I think that, you know, we still have a generation of people who've been there in a long, you know, been there for, for many years. And I do think that it does offer people an opportunity, you know, to get introduced to self-employment. I don't think we want to get rid of the program. I think what we want to do is we want to number one, remarket the program or rebrand it. I think we want to, it's a great opportunity to introduce youth who are in high school, down at the high school level, and even before, you know, about self-employment. I think it could be used in that way. I also think that it's an opportunity to look at other self-employment businesses that are out there and that there are entryways for You know, the program itself for individuals to go into some of those programs. There are franchises that are, you know, not so costly that they can do that. You know, the vending business in itself, the vending industry in itself is a $450 billion a year industry. So when we did the study looking at what are the projected trends, you know, for, for vending industry, it is everything from Buying makeup, for example, they now have makeup, makeup, all kinds of products and makeup and personal care items in the airports now in vending machines. You know, there's, there's all kinds of other franchise opportunities now that there is no reason why individuals who are blind, you know, could not do that as well. And we so, do have a hand.
0: Thank you, Trish. It's, it's that time of the show where we invite participants. And so, okay, Trish, thank you for reminding us of that. You're listening to In Perspective with Bob Branco and Peter Alchil. Our guest is Janet Lebrecht of Synergy Consulting Partners. Trish, who do we have?
3: Okay. Our first hand is area code 317317.
0: 317. 317.
1: You are on the air. Okay. I ask the indulgence of the group. I'm so impressed with this speaker that I'm going to take a personal risk. There is a problem where disabled are not getting help at all. I'm part of the 18 million with long-haul COVID. And although the NIH has recovered COVID, there is nothing to assist us. Half the group has recovered, half of the group is not.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: this needs to be addressed because this is not a small number. If we have 9 million with this as a chronic condition, being disabled just makes it five times worse. I want to make two comments and let you respond. I'll be very brief. One area of equity that's never been addressed are the blind women who marry, have children, and then, if the marriage fails the the lady has no social security quarters whatsoever. The other point I wish to make is that we have some programs that meaning computer programs that Microsoft has advanced brilliantly, leading narrator and magnifier, and not everybody needs to have a screen reader, and I would certainly like to see some emphasis on teaching as these programs work brilliantly together. Forgive me for not stating who I am, but there is a stigma, and I've made a a very bold move here because it's, it's very difficult. I was at a meeting in the ACB, and I stood up and said, I had this, and people moved away. If you don't mind, normally I'd tell you who I am. But mm-hmm. Fair
2: enough. I appreciate you. I was just about to ask I, you. It takes a lot
1: of bravery to do this because yep. I'll be honest with you. I almost died three times last year. I'm, I'm surviving, but I've had to, I know physical therapy. It took me 48 days to learn to walk again. The government is, I guess, assumes disabled do not get long haul cable COVID for nine million. It appears not to be going away. This is not a minor deal. So if you can care to address and I apologize for breaking your rules and not identifying.
0: We understand perfectly. Get it?
3: Yeah, no problem at all. And thank you for raising that issue because, you know, that is something that I do follow also, which is, you know, the the impact of COVID, not just, you know, the pandemic is over. I lost two colleagues of mine that were, that died as a result of COVID. And so not only the the fact that they have COVID and they died from it, but there's that residual impact beyond that person's death, and that's the surviving children, the surviving family members. And I know that there is a great deal of discussion that is going on also. And I know that the disability community and advocacy community is also talking about this because what COVID has done is created a new population for us in terms of those of those individuals who were not disabled prior to covid but now then have been diagnosed with long haul covid and all kinds of other you know physical psychological and emotional trauma because of covid also the other barrier here in reality of covid also is that the insurance companies also and and that is a great discussion now in terms of what how do the insurance companies you know treat long haul covid is there first of all believability and, and and remember when when we got past COVID originally, shortly thereafter when when patients were presenting with additional symptomology, exacerbations of 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 COVID that that resulted in other health related conditions, people really didn't know you know what to expect about that and and the medical community certainly it was new for them also. So long haul COVID. And other complications and disabilities, you know, caused by COVID in the first place, really does present a, a need for looking at number one, the, the data around it. You know, how many how many people, you know, do we really know have have residual health related conditions because of COVID? Where are they getting the help and the support that they need? How is the insurance industry, you know, looking at this also? and social security in particular because these individuals now are eligible or could potentially be eligible for social security and disability because of that ssi payments because of that and they're looking at that now i read a recent brief with social security regarding social security so i know that these things are being discussed and these issues are are definitely being discussed and i know that the advocacy community needs to stay on the forefront of this because the you know our numbers, we we know that the disability com- community every year, the population of people who are aging into disability is increasing. And so that number is not going to go go backwards. And, and if anything, because of COVID, it has increased and we need to make sure that it's being counted and that it's being diagnosed and that people are eligible for those services and supports that they may need as a result of long-haul COVID. So I I appreciate your question and I'm so happy that you that you raised it because it is something we need to think about as a community and it is something we should all be supporting because it could be any of us. So I, I appreciate you, you know, having the, the wherewithal, but also the trust you, you are amongst friends here and, and I appreciate you bringing that up because we need to, to have your voice heard as well.
2: Janet, are there any pilot programs out there that are trying to address this? You know, for for people on the ground, you know, you you spoke about the problem really well. Uh, Are there are there pilot programs that are, you know, trying to sort of address this?
3: By you mean by addressing COVID?
2: Yeah, yeah, the long the long haul COVID that we we, we've been talking about. You know, are there? there Yeah,
3: it's mostly in the medical community, but it's also in the disability community as well. You know, when you look at organizations like Disability Scope, or you know, looking at AAPD, the American Association of People with Disabilities. They are those organizations, Respectability in Washington, D.C. There are other advocacy based organizations also that are looking at this and are weighing in on those conversations and comments. And so, you know, whenever those come across your 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 table, uh, I, I would encourage people to, you know, to comment, you know, to weigh in on that. The Federal Register, uh, oftentimes, you know, if a specific topic like this comes up, whether it's, you know, whether it's long-haul COVID or something else, you know, they usually have a mechanism for commenting periods so that people can, you know, weigh in on where they think the service delivery system needs to be or funding needs to be. Those And it's usually done through those agencies and stakeholders and and the disability community.
2: So I guess my my question is, you know, uh, I've, I, I, I've two or three grants that were pilot programs to address disability issues where we tried different things to see if they made an impact on the problem. I was wondering if there's, if there's such grants out there that are being dressed, you know, to try to begin to address this problem because it clearly is a big problem.
3: Yeah. So organizations and agencies like the National Institute of Health. They they're gonna be one of those key organizations that that looks at this because it is a health, you know, related issue and because any pandemic, uh, the CDC will sometimes have you know grants out for ways to think about improving the lives of people with disabilities. They may they may have a, a specific focus on on COVID. I saw lots of things during the COVID, lots of opportunities there, you know, when COVID was in play. Where they offer grants. And then post COVID, I have seen some grants focusing on, you know, both health disparities and looking at different issues that may have impacted people during, you know, during COVID. So so it just depends on what the agencies are focused on. Everybody seemed to be focused on COVID during that time. I'm seeing less of that now.
2: But I would certainly be interested in learning more about specific programs. You know, we're working with a certain community. Uh, to try to address the challenges of this long haul COVID thing and what's being done and, you know, to, to address the problems and what successes are we having? You know,
0: yeah,
2: uh, I, I, I you no. know, uh, we have about
0: uh, 10 minutes to go. Yeah. I didn't know if Tricia had anybody waiting for.
3: Oh yes, we actually have three hands. So three? let's, okay. do them. let's, let's, go let's take, them. let's take Christopher next.
0: Christopher, welcome to the program. Hello. You might want to unmute your so device. Needed. We'll give him another few seconds and then we'll have to move on to the next person.
3: Right. Let's go ahead on to Tony.
0: Okay, Tony, you're up. You are on the air.
3: Thanks. Uh, I'm interested in the company, Synergy. Can you tell
2: us a little bit about your staff? I'm assuming that you're not a one woman organization, but I have no idea at all.
3: Sure. Yep. Myself. (laughs) I also partner with two Two other individual, individuals that make up uh, Synergy also. We have one person who both were from, both were actually working in state agencies. Another is a certified public accountant, CPA, and knows the state vocational rehabilitation system in terms of funding, in terms of budgeting. So he's a very strong financial background because we also do help agencies to look at ways as to how they are utilizing their funds ways to better track their funds. So we work with them on that as well. And then the other person is a former (sighs) state director also, who also had a background in hospitalization. He is a PhD. And we actually came together in 2017. I approached them because I knew about the work that they did and and what a great job they did in helping one state get out of a lot of financial issues and got them into really good financial state. And it was through both their leadership, you know, to understand how the state systems actually work and understand the vocational rehabilitation program. So the three of us work together, and then we have an admin person. And then if we're writing on specific policies or other issues like that, that where somebody else may have an area of of expertise, if we're tied up on a specific engagement, you know, then we bring other people into help us, you know, on that as well. So we're a small company, but we're just about everywhere. There isn't any place that we haven't, you know, that we haven't traveled to. So we we actually work with the states within their state. So we travel, we may stay there with them for a week or so at a time, working on initiatives and the initiatives and, and the work that they need to, you know, to change. You know, we have been in there anywhere from six months to two years, one state, three years. Just doing different iterations of the work that we had initially started because they were exhibiting some amazing changes and and better relationships. So we we kind of do do it all.
0: Thank you, Anthony. Christopher, are you available? He he is unmuted. Christopher, you're next. Okay. Hello.
3: Christopher, you are unmuted. Go ahead. Mm.
0: No, perhaps not.
3: Yeah, well, he he is shown unmuted on my computer, so I don't know. But uh, you want to move on to Beth?
0: Let, yeah, let's move on because obviously he's not responding.
3: Okay, Beth, go ahead.
0: Hello, Beth.
4: Yes, I have a few comments to make. If you work with people in different states, New Mexico doesn't seem to have too much of a VR program, not only for blind, but for other disabilities as well. and. There are lots of blind seniors who would still like to work, and like commissions for the blind are not interested in training them that much.
3: So you're talking about the state of New Mexico. Have you have you approached them? I'm just curious as to what your experience. Yes, I have. Mm-hmm. And what was their response?
4: They didn't really seem interested. Mm-hmm. And then because I live in an apartment that has a month-to-month lease, they wouldn't help me get computers, so I could get computer training and and stuff like that. Now, I know you could get some from other places, but they just didn't seem interested. And I know that they take they took away the homemaker program in a lot of these VR agencies for newly blinded seniors. And I, I don't think that's fair. Because sometimes they're the only, the only way that a, a person could learn how to regain their function in the world after losing their sight through, you know, when they're seniors like that. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. You know, I think that that is a real, you know, valid issue. That actually happened when I came into that position under my leadership with the Obama administration. And when I came in, that was the first thing that was on the chopping block was the homemaker services. And so obviously, uh, you know, I'm blind. I understand what that's like and I understand, you know, what the need is. And obviously I led an agency for the blind. And one of the things that we fought very hard for was to take that off of the, you know, off of the table. And the best we were able to do with Congress was to get them to agree to an extension for agencies you know to be able to not cut everybody right away but to take it as an individual on an individual basis and provide an extension for agencies and now you know that is long since passed that extension period and so i am really hoping that during the next iteration of the workforce innovation and opportunity act that they will reverse that part of the issue was that nationally homemaker statuses for vocational rehabilitation agencies was a little bit less than 1% of the total number of services that were provided by VR agencies. And so that percentage, you know, certainly doesn't tell the story. I personally believe that, you know, to me, it's not the percentage to me. It's about an individual's independence and their ability to maintain their independence. And when we took that away, you know, it just compromises the ability for people to continue to receive, you know, the services that they want. So, you know, I was very discouraged, you know, by that and and was very frustrated to say the least, you know, by it. I, I am hoping that that will come back up again and maybe we'll see a different story. I don't know, you know, the next time around. A lot of, again, depends on the community coming out. I can fight the battles and I did fight the battles, you know, in terms of that. But if enough people don't come out and support it and tell the personal stories, the personal impact that it has, that's what Congress responds to. They respond to those stories. They respond to the impact. And especially they respond when it's in their districts, you know, when they have individuals in their districts and this is an issue that impacts every single district.
0: Thank you, Beth. Yeah. We have about one minute to go. Uh, Trish, that Christopher, Christopher could, still has his
3: hand up and he's muted now.
0: Could that be Chris? Because oh there God. was a Chris on my list before I started the program. Chris Coulter, could that What's be her? coming
3: up on my computers, Christopher. Christopher, can are you, you're unmuted. Go ahead. I don't know what his issue is. Yeah.
0: Okay. All
2: right. So I, I, I there's a question I'd like to ask you. I don't think there's time for us to ask you, Janet. We have to have you back for one thing. I'd love to know some of those amazing stories that you're seeing across the state of Oak Rehab doing amazing things. I think that's an important question for you to address next time we speak. Yeah. Time. Uh, I, I do want to thank you for the work that you're doing. I learned so much more from you talking with you in. You know, an hour than I do in six months. You know, doing whatever else I do,
0: and and it's state. very encouraging what I'm hearing too. Yeah, you know the disability stuff. You're so, providing a lot of encouragement today. Yeah, so yeah, thank there's, you. For, there's
3: reason to be to be hopeful for sure.
0: Yeah. So um, if we can, we, we'll
2: hopefully we'll bring you back. And the first question I hopefully remember to ask you is, what are those success stories? I think it's important
0: first to hear those.
3: Yes, Love to hear absolutely. more about them. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I also mm-hmm. want yes. to hear
0: an update on the marriage penalty. And if you have something before you come back, let me know and I'll spread the I, word. I'll
3: definitely, yes, absolutely. And I'll email you the bill as well.
0: Right. Yes, yes, thank you could, very yes, much. Yes, as the bills. Cause I, I, I
2: that support yeah. folks need to get the information.
0: Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. Janet, thank you so much for being a part of our program today. We appreciate your time and continued success with Synergy too.
3: Thank you. Have a great weekend.
0: You too. Next okay. week, we're going to have a regular back. Another regular, uh, Congressman John leboutlier will be racing us with his presence next week on In Perspective. Thank you, Trish. Thank you, Herbie. Thank you, Peter. And thank you, callers, for being a part of our show. Go safe with God's abundant blessings. Have a great week, everybody.